Hello, I'm Dr. Luis Ostrowski, Chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. I would like to welcome you to IDSA's Clinical Guidelines podcast series, where we will regularly keep you up to date on new guidelines published by IDSA. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who is a professor of family and community medicine at Temple University School of Medicine and the associate director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about the 2013 IDSA Clinical Practice Guidelines for Vaccination of the Immunocompromised Host that was published online in December 2013 in Clinical Infectious Diseases. The guidelines were created to provide primary care and specialty physicians with evidence-based guidelines for active immunization of patients with altered immunocompetence, as well as their household contacts, in order to safely prevent vaccine-preventable infections. The guidelines are meant to supplement, not replace, the CDC's guidelines, which are updated annually. It's clear that the responsibility for vaccination is shared between both the specialist physician and primary care physicians taking care of the patient, so both have to be knowledgeable about vaccinations in this setting. Since the practice guidelines cover a wide range of illnesses, we'll cover some of the more common things in our discussion today, and I'd refer our listeners to the complete set of recommendations for further details. Joining us today is one of the members of the 2013 IDSA Clinical Practice Guideline for Vaccination of the Immunocompromised Host Committee, Dr. Lori Rubin. Dr. Rubin is Director of Infectious Diseases at Cone Children's Medical Center of New York of the North Shore LIJ Health System and Professor of Pediatrics, Hofstra North Shore LIJ School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Rubin. Good to be here. Now, let's go into the content of the guidelines. Can you discuss some of the general principles that inform decisions about and recommendations for immunosuppressed patients? Specifically, can you talk a little bit about definitions of high and low levels of immunosuppression, safety of vaccination in immunocompromised individuals, and efficacy of vaccination? Sure. I think one of the, the important principles is to vaccinate before uh, the onset of immunosuppression in situations where that's feasible. Uh, for example, a patient in which solid organ transplant is being contemplated, uh, there may be an opportunity where there's a month or more in order to get in indicated vaccinations. Or, for example, a patient with Crohn's disease who's contemplating being started on an anti-tumor necrosis factor antibody, this may give a window of opportunity where vaccines can be given. Uh, in terms of high and low level immunosuppression, uh, some of these definitions are, are difficult, but uh, one that's been defined fairly well is for corticosteroids. So that high level immunosuppression is considered if the patient's on a prednisone equivalent of two milligram per kilogram per day or more, or a total of 20 milligrams per day, that's considered high level immunosuppression uh, if that's given for at least uh, 14 days. Uh, examples of lower-level immunosuppression are patients that are on drugs such as azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine at relatively low doses, not for chemotherapy of, of a cancer, but rather for um, an inflammatory disease. Safety issues are, are really of paramount importance. I mean, the most obvious one is the safety of live vaccines, 
And in general, live vaccines are contraindicated um, in immunocompromised uh, patients, but there are some examples. Uh, the other important concerns are the theoretical concern of exacerbating an immune-mediated disease or causing a transplant organ rejection um, in a patient that's a solid organ transplant recipient. Um, in terms of the uh, exacerbating immune-mediated diseases, the Institute of Medicine uh, did a study, a literature review, and issued a report in 2012 that's available online. They looked at eight vaccines and five chronic inflammatory or autoimmune diseases, and um, we could view this report as the glass is half full or half empty, but they, um, in most of the cases, there was insufficient evidence to rule in or rule out an association. But uh, I think the bottom line is that they didn't uh, didn't identify significant safety concerns. Um, one example for in terms of. Uh, available literature, for example, is there was a large uh, study done on kidney transplant patients, and of the, the subgroup of patients who received influenza vaccine in the year after transplant actually had a lower mortality rate as well as graft rejection rate uh, than the uh, cohort of patients that did not receive influenza vaccine. So I think that overall, um, non-live vaccines are uh, generally considered safe in these patient populations. That's a great great point. And when you said non-live vaccines, how about live vaccines? Yeah, in terms of live vaccines, the general principle is that you don't give them. However, there are some important examples uh, where uh, vaccines, live vaccines can be safely given. Uh, an important example is the HIV-infected child or adult. If they're um, asymptomatic and their CD4 counts are not severely low, meaning under 200 for an adult or adolescent and less than 15% for an infant or child, uh, if they fall into that category, then varicella vaccine, for example, a live attenuated vaccine should be given um, because the vaccine has been safely given. And uh, we know that there's a lot of morbidity from varicella in that patient population. So there, the risk-benefit clearly falls on the side of giving a live vaccine. Um, less data, but the same principle is in place for MMR in the HIV-infected population, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. That's a great point. So I think you touched on it, but just for our listeners so that they understand, it seems very important when we're planning uh, for someone uh, who might undergo immunosuppression, immunosuppressive treatment, to think ahead. And again, how long ahead should vaccines be given? Right. Um, in our guidelines, we ask, uh, suggest uh, at least two weeks for inactivated vaccines and four or more weeks for live vaccine. So, of course, the vaccines would fall into two categories. Those vaccines that would be recommended for a healthy person, that is to say, getting them up to date in their routine vaccine recommendations, and then vaccines that are special because of the immunocompromised, anticipated immunocompromised state. And in many cases, uh, for example, pneumococcal vaccines may fall into that category for many adult categories of, of immunosuppressed or about to be immunosuppressed individuals. Great point. Now, people who uh, are immunosuppressed uh, generally don't live alone, and often their household members get medical care. Uh, are there issues around which vaccines can be safely administered to household members, and are any precautions we ought to think about in those circumstances? 
Yeah, actually, there's very few safety precautions in that situation. Certainly, all inactivated vaccines uh, can be given to household members and should be given to household members uh, because there, um, of course, is no risk of vaccine transmission in that setting because it's not a live agent. Um, and in particular, uh, for example, influenza vaccine, uh, many immunocompromised patients uh, will not respond very well to influenza vaccine, even though it's indicated. Uh, so the, the best way to prevent influenza disease in those patients is to make sure that the entire um, household um, are, are, are immunized to decrease the chances that an immunocompromised person gets exposed to influenza. That's important. That comes up a lot for those of us in primary care. Uh, when we're thinking about international travel, are there any issues around vaccines and immunocompromised persons contemplating international travel? Uh, similarly, inactivated vaccines that are indicated um, should be administered. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, of uh, yellow fever vaccine is a live vaccine and should not generally be administered to immunocompromised patients, but there are categories of patients that uh, can get it so that um, asymptomatic HIV-infected patients with adequate T-cell counts, such as I described earlier, can re receive yellow fever vaccine if the travel to the yellow fever endemic area cannot be avoided. Um, similarly, uh, MMR with the measles component being very important for international travelers, um, this can be given to HIV-infected patients who fulfill the same criteria. Great. And then how about varicella and zoster vaccine, a uh, question that I've often heard. Sure. Um, you know, both varicella and zoster vaccine are live attenuated vaccines, so that one has to uh, consider that. Um, zoster vaccine is recommended for people 60 years and older, um, but it's FDA licensed for those 50 years and older. And it's important to uh, remember that the um, the CDC ACIP recommendations for zoster vaccines includes giving it to people 60 and older who um, are on low-level immunosuppressive agents, such as low doses of methotrexate, azathioprine, uh, 6-mercaptopurine, or the, the low doses of prednisone that I mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, this policy has been in place for a number of years, and we've not seen adverse effects of, of zoster vaccine in that population. Um, the panel considered that uh, it's reasonable to give zoster to people 50 years and older who are receiving these um, immunosuppressive medications that induce a low level of immunosuppression uh, because the vaccine is licensed in that group, and uh, this is a population that is at increased risk for uh, developing zoster. But other uh, highly immunosuppressed populations should not receive either a varicella vaccine for sort of primary immunization or zoster vaccine. That's helpful. Um, you talked earlier about influenza vaccine. We're in the middle of influenza season, so I just do want to uh, emphasize that for our audience, influenza vaccine issues around immunocompromised persons. You mentioned that they generally should get influenza vaccine, and we should pay a lot of attention to family members. Any particular issues in addition to that? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. Um, I mean, the standard recommendations are that uh, you know everybody six months of age and older in the population, including the immunosuppressed population, are candidates to get influenza vaccine every year. Um, the recommendation for the immunocompromised patients is to get only the inactivated vaccine or the injection vaccine rather than the live nasal vaccine. Um, 
because uh, the live nasal vaccine at least has a theoretical possibility of, of causing um, more adverse effects in the immunocompromised patient. Um, however, it is, is likely to be the case that there are certain populations of immunocompromised patients, such as leukemia patients receiving um, intensive chemotherapy, uh, patients that have received um, anti-B-cell antibody therapies, such as rituximab, um, that they just will not respond to flu to influenza vaccine, uh, making it that much more important to vaccinate all the healthcare workers around them and all the household members around them. Great. Let's move on to patients with minor antibody deficiencies, such as patients with IgA deficiency or specific polysaccharide antibody deficiencies. Uh, what do we think about with vaccines in that group? Yeah, um, these uh, this patient populations really should receive the normal uh, vaccines that are given to um, given to all individuals, and that includes um, live attenuated vaccines. Uh, the main difference in that group is that some of the uh, groups should receive the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, um, which of course is routine for children under five years of age, but is not routine for adolescents, uh, older children, adolescents, and adults. And in, uh, in that circumstance, I would uh, recommend giving that vaccine as well. Great. Let's now move on to another group, uh, patients with HIV uh, infections. How do we approach immunizations in that group? You touched on this a bit earlier, but again, want to be clear for our listeners. Right. Um, well, if we focus first on inactivated vaccines, um, HIV-infected patients, whether they're children or adults, should follow the same schedule as for healthy patients, uh, but uh, really there's a few additions to that. And those additions would include the use of the 13-valent uh, pneumococcal vaccine, PCV13, for adolescents, um, adults, and children older, older five should receive PCV13 if not previously immunized. In addition, the other pneumococcal vaccine, the 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, uh, should be given to all HIV-infected uh, patients starting at age two years of age um, with a single second dose given five years after the first dose. So if that's a newly diagnosed adult with HIV infection, they would get a dose of PCV13. Eight weeks later, they would get a dose of the 23-valent polysaccharide vaccine. And then five years later, they would get a second dose of that polysaccharide vaccine. The other way... Uh, a couple other ways in which the immunization regimen is different is that uh, the routine meningococcal vaccine uh, given to 11-year-olds, in the case of HIV-infected patients, they would get a two-dose primary series rather than a single-dose primary series. And then HIV-infected or uh, healthy people would get that second dose at age 16 years. And finally, for HPV vaccine, human papillomavirus vaccine, uh, that would be given to males 11 through 26 years of age rather than 11 through 21 years of age for um, healthy people. Um, also, the um, IDSA panel indicated a preference for HPV4, the quadrivalent vaccine, over HPV2 in recognition of the morbidity of genital warts in the HIV-infected population and uh, that the um, the two extra two serotypes in HPV4 uh, specifically are the most common serotypes causing genital warts. That's a great point and uh, one that uh, is important to be aware of. Let's move on now to patients with cancer, addressing issues of vaccination in that group. 
Sure. Um, as I mentioned um, earlier, in terms of influenza vaccine, um, if on chemotherapy or at least uh, induction chemotherapy, an activated influenza vaccine may not be all that effective. Um, but uh, so that it's generally recommended, but um, you know may not be effective. And then uh, PCV13 is recommended for patients with cancer. Uh, this ideally is given before chemotherapy is instituted, if that's feasible, and if the PCV13 has not previously been received. Um, other inactivated vaccines um, can be given, but uh, would not be considered valid doses uh, because it's unclear how good the response will be during chemotherapy and should be re repeated starting at least three months after completion of chemo chemotherapy. Also, live vaccines are not given uh, to uh, cancer patients that are on chemotherapy. Uh, how about patients with chronic inflammatory diseases such as Crohn's or rheumatoid arthritis maintained on immunosuppressive therapies? Sure. Um, these patients should receive routinely recommended vaccines, uh, including live vaccines, prior to initiation of immunosuppression, if that's feasible. Um, in addition, uh, as discussed for some of the other patient groups, such as HIV, the pneumococcal vaccine, the PCV13, and the 23-valent polysaccharide vaccine are indicated um, for this population. If you um, are giving that, uh, the order in which you give it is give the PCV13 first, uh, followed by the 23-valent polysaccharide pneumococcal vaccine eight or more weeks later. And then the last specific group we're going to talk about are uh, patients who are asplenic or those with sickle cell disease. Sure. Uh, you know, patients with asplenic or sickle disease are predisposed to encapsulated bacteria, and the most important ones are pneumococcus, streptomoniae, Haemophilus influenzae type B, and meningococcus. Uh, therefore, these vaccines um, should be given to this, these patient populations. Um, uh, PCV13, of course, is routinely given to infants, but then those infants should get the 23-valent polysaccharide vaccine when they turn two years of age with a second dose five years later. If a patient has a splenectomy as an adolescent or adult uh, and they've not previously received pneumococcal vaccines, they should receive the PCV13 followed eight weeks later by the, by the polysaccharide vaccine. Uh, meningococcal, meningococcal conjugate vaccine should also be given, uh, uh, which is routinely given to uh, people at 11 years of age, but should be given uh, uh, to younger children, even infants, um, if they are asplenic. And uh, again, should be given to adults if they, for example, have a surgical splenectomy and haven't uh, previously received that. And finally, Haemophilus influenzae type B, uh, Haemophilus influenzae type B conjugate vaccine is a routine infant vaccine. But if there is an um, adolescent or adult who's not previously received that and they are, um, uh, have a splenectomy, then they should uh, get that vaccine as well. Dr. Rubin, this was a great discussion of the important points put forth in the vaccination of immunocompromised host IDSA guidelines. Really appreciate your joining us today. Oh, thank you. Uh, we've, we've reviewed uh, a lot of information. We talked about general principles as well as uh, details of vaccinations in uh, persons with compromised immunity, family members, uh, as well as specific vaccines. It's important for our listeners to know that the complete guidelines include a lot 
more detail uh, on uh, other immunodeficiencies as well, primary complement deficiencies, innate immune defects, major antibody deficiencies, hematopoietic stem cell transplant patients, uh, patients with cochlear implants, so that uh, really do refer people to look at the complete guidelines. And the guidelines, as we talked about earlier, are uh, incredibly well organized. If someone has a specific question, these are guidelines that really are constructed so that uh, we can go to the guidelines and find answers to our specific questions uh, very quickly. Those guidelines are available on uh, the IDSA's website, www.idsociety.org. So for the Infectious Disease Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I want to thank people for listening. Thank you, Dr. Rubin. You're welcome.